Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. Amanda, it's been such a long time since you and I have had a time. Oh my gosh. (laughs) We don't even know how to talk anymore. It's been so long. (laughs) It's true. We haven't had a moment for you and I just to catch up on the podcast. I mean, what's going on? I know. I feel like we've had, like, we go through these stages where we have only behind the scenes chats and then it's like I want to talk to you on the podcast too so we can kind of like share what's going on but uh I feel like also you and I we say this a lot it's like do we share a brain or like live parallel lives because for sure we've both been working on similar stuff like a lot of cookbook stuff and then also classes those are pretty time consuming uh one of the things I wanted to talk to you about though is So I've been doing classes, you've been doing classes, and my first class had like tons of people sign up. I was super excited. I was riding high. The second class, I had to promote a bit more. It ended up still having enough people, but I reached out to you when I was like, like, I just wanted to share because like, I think sometimes you think, oh, these people are doing classes and everything's just easy and smooth. And I always like it and appreciate when somebody's honest And I contacted you and I was like kind of freaking out. Like, what if nobody signs up? What if, you know, like I have to tell the people that have signed up, like, we're not going to do this class. There's a lot of anxiety, at least for me, like putting myself out there to say, Hey, I'm going to have this class and let people sign up for it. Cause then you feel terrible. Like what if nobody wants to come, but it worked out and people came. But something you told me is that um, people kind of like get into a routine where they, they start coming to you for certain things. And so at first there's a lot of excitement because it's like, Oh, it's your first class that you're offering. And then maybe the momentum isn't quite there yet, but if you keep at something, people start to kind of know, like you have classes and sometimes it's literally just a date thing. Like maybe right. you have a class at a weird time. You can't let that one time make you go, Oh, this is not a fit for me, but I have another class coming up and the signups are like way up. And so I'm feeling like that momentum that you, you like, you know, told the universe was hopefully going to happen for me. I feel like it's happening, but I just wanted to share it. Cause I thought somebody else out there is probably thinking about doing classes and there's ups and downs, but like I don't want anybody to have a class where maybe there's lower enrollment and think nobody wants to come to my class. I need to just stop doing this because that's probably not the case. If you have a class that's of value, you know, keep at it and hopefully it'll work out for you and hopefully it'll keep working out for me. We just have to try, right? Well, congratulations on sticking with it. And I totally relate with everything you've said, of course. And for me, I've had this Portuguese pastry class that's been really, really popular. And then it's gone through these waves of, like you said, not many people signing up. And now I'm at the point too, where I just, I'm like, I need to come up with some other classes so that, you know, I can re-engage the people that I've already met and hopefully reach even more people. And I've tried to like sneak in a Swedish princess cake class and things. And none of those have taken yet except for the Portuguese class. So I know that's kind of my next step to continue engaging my, my audience. Um, and to, it, it's a total journey, but it's very personal, of course, because, you know, this is something we're creating. And um, 
I'm so excited that we're, we're doing this. Yeah. I just think like in the world of Instagram and social media, like you see people doing things, but you don't always see the behind the scenes stuff. So as much as I can, I always try to give a peek, like, cause in the past I've looked at people doing things and I'm like, Oh, well they could teach a cake class, but like, I don't know how to teach a cake class. But I think a lot of times the difference in like the people who do it and the people who don't is literally just that, like just doing it or not. And I, w- I definitely would not want to be someone who ever makes it look too easy. I don't think that I do. I think that I present myself as uh, wonderfully flawed as I am, but but I just don't want to present that image of like, oh yeah, like for me, it's just a rocket ship to the moon. You know, it's like it's it's just not that way. So it's a struggle, and it's a fun struggle, and one I'm really thankful for. But I just don't want that facade of like bliss, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Save the bliss for the buttercream. Oh, that's buttercream bliss. There's a, there's a cookbook name for somebody out there. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have an amazing guest today, none other than James of Cluck Muck Cook, who was a contestant on season eight of the Great British Bake Off. I just adore James. I know you do too. All of our interactions with him on social media have been so great. He just has this authentic type of voice. And then his approach to home baking is he comes at it with the strategy of a professional, which I really love. He doesn't seem to shy away from anything that could be scary or, or, uh, he just like tackles it and and comes out with these really spectacular results. And our chat with him was awesome. I can't wait for everybody to hear. And it's all about bread. Of course, we're going to get to know James a bit, but we deep dive into all types of bread baking, especially beginning bread baking. So if you've got those questions of how to start, what recipes to try, what to do with yeast, what uh, things about flour, even we go into natural fermentation with sourdough, you're going to get a lot of good answers. Yeah. So it's our second bread episode of this season. So if you're loving the bread of this one and you haven't heard our episode with Peter Reinhardt, go back and find that one too. You'll love both bready, carby conversations. And without further ado, let the carb fest begin. Welcome to Flower Hour, James. We're excited to talk to you, and I feel like the most natural place to start is at the beginning. So we'd love to ask you, how did you get started baking? Oh, well, thanks for welcoming me to the podcast. Um, I started way back when I was about four or five. Um, Me and my dad used to bake in the, the home kitchen. My dad worked nights, so we used to spend the weekends baking together. My mum was always the cook, and my dad was the baker. Uh, and one of my first baking memories is making the worst loaf of bread ever, which <laughs> probably is still in the garden uh, of the house that we grew up in. It's probably harder than uh, Stonehenge stones. It's it's probably going to be found in years to come. Um, but yeah, my dad gave me my carb addiction. He loved breads and pastries. Uh, and I've baked most of my way through my life. I did, when I started work, start running and kind of turned away from baking a little while. Uh, 2012, I was diagnosed with arthritis of the spine uh, and told not to run anymore. So I ended up back in the kitchen as my stress relief, which led me to coming back to the being on the show and uh, enjoying baking again. Such an interesting weaving path with baking in you. Yeah, it's always been part of my life uh, and definitely part of the family's life. 
Um, and it seems to be all the men in the family that tend to bake as well, um, which is generally quite odd, especially in the UK. Um, although I know a lot of the bread bakers are generally men now. But uh, yeah, so we've always loved baking. I've got two boys, one nine and one 13, and they love being in the kitchen. And it's just a great way to spend time together, uh, seeing what they're up to at school. It's kind of a that sort of safe place where you can just have a good chat. Uh, and it doesn't feel like I'm sort of quizzing them, kind of, hey, you doing at school, what are you doing? Who's that friend? Who's this friend? Why, why are you on <laughs> Xbox? It's, uh, so it, the kids just love baking, and it's a great way to spend a bit of time together. Are there any favorite bakes that you love to do with the boys? My youngest loves Pepper Carcors. It's a Swedish ginger snap biscuit. That's probably his number one bake. Uh, and my eldest son loves making lemon drizzle cakes so we've got a plan to make a lemon drizzle cake this weekend delicious and his bizarrely wants to make pasta as well this weekend so i'm gonna make pasta for the first time oh wow you've got a whole schedule ready to go <laughs> they certainly book me in it's <laughs> like by thursday night like what are we making <laughs> it's a... how fun how fun and then what are some of your favorite bakes with your dad so my dad he was always uh, and these may be british bakes i'm not sure if they uh, you have them over in the U.S. Chelsea buns and Belgian buns. They're kind of enriched dough, fruited, sort of dried fruits, fine fruits, and spices. The Belgian bun is covered in a layer of white icing, and the Chelsea bun is just sprinkled in sugar. So they were always his favourites, and something that he'd always pick up if he was at a, a bakery somewhere. Or hot crust buns is another big family favorite. Would you say those are, like, you would say they're different from cinnamon rolls just because of the fruit? Or otherwise, are they pretty similar, the Chelsea Chelsea buns? They're pretty similar uh, to a cinnamon bun, apart from fruit. I think the spice is different. Uh, we have um, some, a generic spice mix we call mixed spice over here, which probably the closest is your pumpkin spice. Ah, uh, okay. Um but it has a bit more coriander, um, it's got ginger, clove, cinnamon, allspice. But it's a very balanced um, mixture, so they're all pretty much equal amounts. Whereas I think pumpkin spice is a lot more cinnamon heavy and nutmeg heavy. So it's a subtle difference, um, but not much. It's quite like a, a cinnamon bun, which I tend to make a lot now with the kids after obviously living in the States. I fell in love with them over there. Thanks for clearing that up. Always wondered if what was the difference between mixed spice and pumpkin pie spice sorted. Yeah, and I was always kind of curious if Chelsea buns were just interchangeable with cinnamon buns. But so this is educational right out of the gate. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> now, what are the? T- I, I'm sorry, I'm just I love the buns. So let's <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> what what fruits are traditional in the breads, and how creative are people getting these days? So traditionally, it would be raisins, sultanas, and candied peel. Um, but nowadays, a lot of people are not big fans of sort of candied orange peel and lemon peel in their buns. So we're seeing a lot more, uh, and one I really like is a cranberry um, hot cross bun um, and use Ooh, fresh lemon zest good. in it rather than use the candied peel. It gives a, a lot fresher flavor. Um and in good tradition of ruining any really good traditional bake, the supermarkets have come out now with choc chip hot cross buns, caramel hot cross buns, and they're not quite right in my mind. You kind of have to keep a little bit of a nod to, to tradition um, and have mm. those those lovely rich fruits. 
dried um, cherries are also really good in it. You, a dried cherry and a chopped chip makes a nice hot cross bun as well. That's the, the deviation I will go for. Um, and the weirdest one I've made, which is going to sound odd, is miso caramel hot cross buns. Um, you make like a, a, a hard crack caramel with miso, and it gives it a really nice umami sort of flavour to the bun. And it's it's a bit like a salted caramel, but amped up to like the tenth degree. Makes your house smell for weeks after you've baked it, but uh, they're absolutely delicious. It sounds luxurious. So good. How do you feel about candy peel, James? I, uh, if I'm honest, I hate it. It's. I think it's something that I always had to have as a kid because it was in um, the Brits love a fruitcake. Uh, unfortunately, we're moving away from that dense fruitcake. And it was always in fruitcake, so it always reminded me of some of the bad cakes my nan used to make. Um, so <laughs> I, I prefer to go with a lot of the fresher vine fruits and you can get a lot more variety now. I feel like you guys are about to brawl because Jeremiah is a fruitcake man, aren't you? <laughs> I think, I think cause I discovered it later in life with, along with mince, you know, mince pies. Yeah. And so it just, uh, I have a different, I think I can totally imagine. I've had some of the fruitcakes over there that are not so great and how you could definitely as a kid be like, this is not, not something I want to have. And it's interesting, like, we don't put candied peel typically in any sort of, like, uh, cinnamon roll or anything like that. So I hear it, and I'm like, ooh, what a wonderful uh, way yeah. to innovate this roll that we've had so many times. So to me, it's that sounds new and fresh, whereas zest is old news in yeah, my exactly. mind, you know? So it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's a difference, I think. It's something that you haven't tried before. I, I always like trying new things, so I can see why you'd really like to try something like that, whereas I'm moving the other way because traditionally we haven't used uh, right. British bacon. I know the European bakers use a lot of lemon zest and orange zests, but the UK never really had, I, I guess because we don't grow our own oranges and lemons, so traditionally we never would have um, had them in our, in our puts and pies. Well, we're here today, of course, because we all love bread, the three of us immensely. And... Um, we have a ton of questions from our listeners all about bread, and it's going to be pretty intense. But before we get to that, we have a special question from our dear Southern fatty. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I love Southern fatty. <laughs> we have to talk about the tent at least a little bit. I feel like it's something you've probably covered, you know, a million and one times. But his his question I thought was interesting because it's kind of a different sort is he's noticed on your social media that you've gone on some excursions with the bakers from your season. And he, he said, it's not so much of a question, but he'd just love to hear you talk a bit about that, like that relationship and what you guys do on your trips. And I'm curious too. I'd love to hear more. Yeah. I, I think as you guys know that you end up with such a strong bond and friendship of the, the bakers in your season. Um, but also you become part of a bigger Bake Off family. So we're, we're now seeing from the London bakers and people who are down south of the UK is that some of our excursions now include cross-season bakers, some from the one that's just shown this year uh, and some from the previous year. So uh, people like Celeste or Andrew uh, Smith that you've had on the, on the podcast. So we was uh, the first probably big outing we had, we went to Amsterdam. There was, I think it was Yanni, um, Sophie, um, Stacy, myself, and Julia, and Tom, um, 
all were invited across to Amsterdam to make Stroop waffles because on our caramel episode, we all ruined them so badly that they wanted to show us how to make them properly. <laughs> so we had a fantastic couple of days. It was great just getting away together. Uh, and then we spent time with the uh, Stroop Waffle Company and did some baking with them and, and we made up some of our own recipes. So that was a really fun trip. Um, and then also one of the things Yanni arranged only in the last probably, I think it must have been three or four weeks ago, is that she did a bakery tour of the east, the east of London because she is from northeast London. Um, and she had some lovely bakeries that she wanted to go to. So there was a group of us out. So we had some, uh, so Andrew come on that one, Rav from Andrew's series, uh, and then Anthony from this year um, and Dan Beasley from this year. All went out just doing a tour of the local bakeries around the the East End, and then in good British tradition, ended up in a pub for a good chat and an after. Um, and um, <laughs> one of the previous contestants was doing a class um, just around the corner, so she was teaching a class of about eighteen people um, how to bake. I think she was doing scones and things like that. And we said we'd she was hoping to join us, but she was working hard. So we all snuck into the class and scared the life out of them. Um, they had a big sort of bake-off photo session with everyone who kind of turned up, so they loved it. But yes, yeah, so we, we're hoping to do something like that every every quarter, every three months. Um, but it's lovely to catch up with people, um, as I'm sure you try and catch up with people as and when you're, you're popping around the, the US or when people are in town. I just have to give hats off to the people who cast these shows, because... It's like they found the most lovely people and lumped them together. And, and like, I don't think I could do a better job yeah. picking my own friends. <laughs> I'm like, how, how did they find? And it, and it, it clearly, it's the same there. It's the same here where they find people who just work together and, and do, you go through this experience, you get the bond, but it, it's amazing to me. It's really amazing. Yeah. It's because I, I think, um, the last series, there was about 18,000 applicants. To whittle it down to a dozen people who are all so diverse, so passionate about what they do, and so friendly, it's they do an awesome job. That's a, and I think they're probably the same people that you probably met through your process as well. So they're quite a core team. Uh, definitely in the UK, I think they've been doing it for years now. At Sour Ho Baking would like to know, what should every beginning bread baker know? And that's a really broad question james but what comes to your mind first I, I think looking back some of the advice that i've got um from some really good bakers either on the show so yanni and chris were brilliant um, i wasn't great at bread prior to the show i've just really fallen in love with it um some of the things i wish i knew um one is obviously follow the recipe so get the right balance of flour to water it's critical i always used to make my bread too dry so it'll be too dense and it won't rise that much um so we always use the adage me and yanni is wetter is better so if the dough looks really tight just add a little bit of water just even just wetting your hands while you're kneading it will just add a bit more moisture in always use um in date yeast that's probably why mine and my dad's first ever attempt was <laughs> like a rock um it, <laughs> make sure you stuff your yeast is in date Use warm water. Uh, people say tepid. Um, so if you can put your hand in it and it feels quite neutral, it's not cold, not hot, that's ideal. Um, and if you're brand new to baking, I'd say check the temperatures of the kitchen you're in, the water you're using, because 
that can fluctuate quite greatly how quickly things rise uh, once they get going. Um, so if you're consistent and you try and keep similar temperatures, um, that makes things easier as you're trying to tweak and work out um, what went right or wrong. And then I think the biggest sin that most first-time bread makers make is when they start kneading, it's all sticky and yucky. Um, so they throw more flour onto the dough or onto the bench until it dries out a bit. But actually the, the motion of kneading over that seven to ten minutes, either in a spiral mixer or by hand, actually brings the dough to that lovely, silky, stretchy feeling. So don't try and shortcut it by throwing the flour on, because, again, that will make it a dense loaf and not, not grow in the oven as you want it to get in that oven spring. I think all of that is great info. Yeah, perfect for beginner baker. I, I would only add to that. I just can't help myself, but like, just try it because I kept away from making bread for a long, long time because I thought I'm going to screw this up. And you know what? You probably will, but if you don't get started, you're never going to get good at it. So just get in there. And, and for the most part, even bad bread, when you make it oh, yourself, is still exactly. pretty great, you know, especially when it's warm and slathered in something. Oh yeah. Patty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that smell of the fresh baked loaf coming out of the oven. You just can't. It's fantastic. It. All right. So at really into this, would like to know what bread tools you must have and or that help beginning bakers. So are there any essentials that you say, get it, you must have it? So you probably have seen through my posts that every tool you suggest on flower hour, <laughs> I end up buying. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I am a baking gadget geek um, when it comes down to it. But there was um, the, I can't remember the name of the whisk that uh, was recommended. Uh, is it a Danish dough whisk? Danish dough whisk. That has been a godsend to me. Um, it's kind of a wooden handle with a really thick spiral on it. So as you start mixing your dough, and I, I use it a lot for mixing the first bit of sourdough, it doesn't throw the flour everywhere and it can get through and work in the dough. So that's. I love that. And I think the only other two things you need are one of those plastic dough scrapers to scrape stuff out your bowl and then a really good bench scraper. So one of those metal ones that have got a flat bottom and you can chop your dough up with it and you can scrape stuff. I think those are the core tools. You don't really need a lot. Uh, for slashing dough, I have tried lames. I've tried serrated knives. I've tried razor blades. Um, if you've got a good, sharp, serrated knife, that works just as good as anything. So I wouldn't worry about spending lots of money on lanes and different gadgets and tools um, around that. But really, you, you only need a bowl and a couple of scrapers, and I think you should be good to get going. Exactly. You don't need a mixer. You've got those hands ready to go. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with all of your, your tool suggestions. Thank you. And it's so therapeutic needing dough. I just love the... The kind of 10 minutes of just relaxing while you need in a day. Oh, yeah. My mom has this vision of creating like an exercise program <laughs> all around kneading dough. That's so brilliant. <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh my gosh. I and I hope that. she does it. I hope she does it. I would take that class. <laughs> okay. The next, let's see, four people all, all had a similar question. So I'm going to read their names together and give the question. So it's at to die for baking at Hans Bakes, at The Ruby Cookie, at Carlos Marquina, Mar Marquina, Marquina, 
9910. They all want to know what recipe that you would suggest for a new baker and potentially a book you would recommend for someone just getting started. So recipe, a book, or a couple recipes, that would be great. So for recipes, um, I think the place I started with the recipes was my local flour mill. They've got a website, and I think they've got the best URL ever there. I think they're flour.co.uk or flour.com. They, they got the, um, the name before the internet was trendy. Um, they've got some brilliant recipes, but I, I would always start with a, a basic white loaf. Um, and, and I can send you the link to, to add to, um, to the show notes at the end. Um, but I would start with a basic white because what strong white bread flour is quite, I guess, forgiving um, before you start moving into trying some of the more exotic grains or whole meals that be, can be quite heavy. So always start with a good basic white and then move on by adding 25% of a different flour just to get different flavours in. Um, but then you, you get used to working the dough, and then you can start being more and more creative, would be my, my first um, view on round recipes. There's a good sourdough recipe on my website, <laughs> if anyone wants a simple sourdough. Um, that's taken me a little while just to get it, so it's it was more for me writing down once I sort of cracked sourdough for the first time and it's a fickle beast sourdough. There'll be some days it works brilliantly and other days the sourdough gods haven't been smiling on me and it hasn't really worked. But um, I think it's quite consistent recipe out there now. I've been tweaking it probably for the last year or so. Then from a book perspective, I've got probably most of the normal ones like tartan, um, flour, water, salt and yeast. But my favourite is uh, going back to the Australian conversation earlier is the Tivoli Road Baker so they're in Melbourne Australia um, it's a husband and wife duo who run the bakery uh, and I only realized um, recently that the husband is English because um, I quizzed him about the protein content of one of his loaves because I am a total flour geek as well um, and he responded back saying oh you should try flour from this meal which is my local mill that's literally 20 minutes away. Um, so that is a brilliant book. And he does a mixture of um, bread, some Australian-type bakes like, uh, was it Lamington's? One of your favourites from your series? Yeah, Lamington's, yeah. Um, and then also does hot cross buns and some British bakes in there. So it's a really good mixture. Uh, and his breads come out really well. They're very consistent. That sounds like a lovely book, and I'm I'm not familiar with it. Now you're you're making us want to buy cookbooks. <laughs> it's payback time. You've cost me. Oh, a lot of <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some other questions about yeast from To Die For Baking. She says, "Talk to me about yeast types, and also where should you store yeast? The freezer?" She says. Uh, the so freezer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a great question. So. If I'm just baking at a weekend, I'll just use a tin of fast-acting yeast, um, so the powdered stuff that you just pop into the bread, um, add water, and you're off and going. Getting fresh yeast in the UK is actually quite tricky, so you have to go to either a bakery or some supermarkets if they've got bakeries within them will sell the, the fresh yeast. So, oh, sorry, my dog just started barking in the corner. Um, so if, uh, if I've gone for fresh yeast, I will buy a big batch and I will freeze it. It does, it's really hard to kill yeast, um, so it will last in the freezer, but wrap it well with cling film and foil so it doesn't get any freezer burn. 
And when you defrost it, it can look as if it's weeping a bit of liquid out of it, but that's fine. It'll work just as well. But if you can use it fresh, that's perfect. Um, but nowadays, I make so much sourdough. I've always got a sourdough starter on the go that I generally don't use kind of the commercial type yeast, so I'll end up going down the sourdough route. I've never used fresh yeast. Have you played with it, Jeremiah? No, it's often called for in all the Portuguese breads and, you know, yeast to desserts. Um, but I, I'm always having to convert to instant yeast. Yeah, same. I, I find instant yeast a lot more consistent as well. It's a, it's a, I, yeah. I, I think that oh, and okay. also if you're not break, baking that much bread, it's easier just to leave a pot of instant yeast in your, your larder rather than having to keep trying to get fresh yeast uh, and throwing a lot away. So. James, over here, I'm sure you know, we have active dry yeast, and then we also have instant yeast. Do you guys have the, the two different of the commercial yeast there as well? Yes, we do. So I use the active one. That, that's got the additional kind of gives it a boost. Is it? Uh, I can't remember what they put in. Is it citric acid or something like that? But gives it its extra oomph. Um, but, yeah, we do get um, similar that we get both types. Okay. I think we call it fast acting over here. And then right. produce. Very good. Let's talk about kneading. So at back nine farm underscore Lindsay or Lindsay wants to know, how do you know when you're done kneading for the correct amount of time? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I learned, I, I, I got the opportunity quite recently to go and bake with a technical baker at the flour mill. Um, and that was my always my own personal biggest challenge is trying to work out when I'm done because it would say need for seven minutes, but everyone needs slightly differently and has different strength and different ways of needing. Um, so he made me start looking at the dough. So you can do the window pane test where you just pull it apart and you should be able to just see through it a bit like a phyllo dough without it actually splitting. So that's a, a good test. But an even better thing, which I think is something you have to actually start seeing and realizing in the dough, is that he said you want the dough to start looking a bit matte so it doesn't look like it's sweating. So he said sort of a healthy glow is good, but sweating like you've just run a marathon's bad. Um, <laughs> and, and he showed it to me, and it was a difference between about 30 seconds of kneading as well. And it was quite marked, the difference in the actual visual. So if it still looks shiny on the outside, probably worth kneading it a little bit more. Um, but all in all, I think if you needed it between 7 and 10 minutes, you're probably going to be pretty much there anyway. And if you let it prove well, um, the dough will continue to kind of build its gluten anyway. So um, if it doesn't feel right, just keep going for a little bit longer. But I wouldn't bother past 10 minutes. You're probably done. I'm curious from you guys, if you were going to air on one one end or the other under kneading or over kneading what would you tell people to do i would go over i, I think it's hard to over knead but you you'll get to a stage where it doesn't stretch as much anymore and it starts to snap um you really have to stop them because you need it to settle back because you want to get a nice tall tension around your dough um but if you left it for mm. 30 minutes it will relax again and you can bring it all back together quite easy. same 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 Thank you to Subi Honey for sponsoring this episode of Flower Hour. The next time you're baking, consider skipping the sugar and substituting it for honey. But not just any kind. Try using the traditional filtered Subi Honey or Aunt Sue's raw and unfiltered honey. Both 
another great alternative for sugar. For starters, you can use a third less honey than sugar when you bake, which means you're reducing calories. And different kinds can add different flavors, like Subi's orange honey or Aunt Sue's wildflower honey. Plus, when you use Subi honey or Aunt Sue's, you're guaranteed pure, premium USA honey that's tested for the highest quality in purity, clarity, and flavor. How do they ensure this quality? Because all of their honey is produced by the 270 independent family beekeepers who make up the Sioux Honey Association Co-op. The co-op started nearly 100 years ago, and to this day, they still know all of the beekeepers by name. Because they believe it's not just where your honey comes from that matters, it's who. So the next time you're baking, pick up a bottle of Sioux Bee or Aunt Sue's at your favorite supermarket or shop for honey online at SueBee.com. That's S-U-E-B-E-E.com. Okay, and then we have a question from Katie Bratt, and that's Bratt with three T's. Bratt, uh, she says, do you use your KitchenAid dough hook to mix bread or do you need by hand? Uh, I'm lazy, so... I will throw it in the kitchen aid for probably the first five, six minutes um, to get a lot of the hard work done. But I will put it out onto the, the surface and then start kneading it by hand. Just because one thing, I actually like the process of kneading, but also you start to feel what the dough's meant to feel like when it's kneaded, if that makes sense, rather than just guessing from the mixer. And it is very tactile bread, so you have to do a bit by hand, I think. How about you, Jeremiah? Oh, I'm so relieved you said that because I was going to feel so bad if you're like, I do everything by hand because I'm like, I get very lazy and I love to use the dough hook as well. And I feel like for really yeah. wet doughs, um, it's nice because you have that if you get to know your mixer and you get to know the recipe, you can tell like, okay, if it's clinging to the bottom of the bowl in a certain way, I know it's good. If it's like not, I know I need to go longer or I need to adjust, you know, the liquid or the flour. So I love it for those sorts of doughs especially, but I agree. I mean, this is bread's always been made by hand. We've got to get our hands in there to, to really understand the texture and the tactile that that information I think is so important. So that's a really good tip to, um, to pull it out and to get your hands in there at the end. I think the combo is great too, because everybody talks about how great it is to knead bread. And I totally agree. The experience is wonderful, but the first part is not so pleasant. Like, you know, the first initial, like trying to do that on your counter is it's, it's not as pleasant. So you're getting like the best part of the kneading, that nice tactile experience without, you know, the first sloppy situation. So (laughs) there's nothing like that. Like your hands are just clumped with that and you're like, Oh, never, this is, how is this going to improve? But that's the moment when both of my kids are like, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want some milk. And I'm going, do you see my hands? How am I going to open the fridge? (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) Okay. We've kneaded our dough. It's time for proofing. And at Everly Weedap. Everly Wed. I know her. This is my my friend from Atlanta. (laughs) Thank God. I was hoping you'd correct me. (laughs) She, She wants to know. My dough sometimes... My dough sometimes doesn't rise in an hour. How long should I wait? Uh, (laughs) My immediate answer will be till it's ready. It all depends on temperature of kind of the water in your ingredients and how active your yeast is. Um, So I never go by a hard, um, leave it for an hour and it's done. 
People say wait for it to double in size, um, which is incredibly hard to guess when you put it in a spherical bowl um, because it's not going to rise kind of evenly up the side. So I often prove mine in a square Tupperware now. So at least I can mark where it was to start with and I know when it's kind of doubled in size. But I think the best guide is if you just touch the top gently, you just want it to spring back really slowly. So if it's, if it's still just leaving a... Oh, actually, if it leaves a dent in there, you, you may have gone a bit too long. But you get this little gentle, spongy bounce on it. Um, so I would leave it, and it can take... I've done it from an hour to two hours before. It, it, it really depends on the temperature and weather. Um, and I err on the side of probably overproving the first time round rather than under. Um, and then I'll compensate on the second fruit. I remember I love Brave Tart, as everyone knows, Stella Parks. And she'll talk about just kind of paying attention to the season yeah. you're in. So, like, if you're in winter, you've got to think, like, your flower's probably cold, your bowls are cold, your every, every ingredient is cold. So she talks about, like, warming up, you know, bowls and flour in the, um, the oven, um, I just think that's, you got to kind of take all those things into account, you know, if the, the temperatures that are going on in your kitchen and that could, maybe it's not going to slow it down by an hour, but you know, those little things all add up. And so just be mindful of those temperatures is my, yeah, totally. My and, yeah, that's a great. And, and there's a, there's a, a, um, I guess a mathematical, mathematical way of calculating to take into account all of those variables. So a lot of people talk about a final dough temperature or a desired dough temperature where you're aiming right. kind of the ideal dough temperature for it to prove well and consistently is around 78 degrees. So you times that by four. This is going to get really geeky now, and I never use it myself. Um, so you times that by four, and then that gives you a total number. I should have picked 75 because the math would have been easier. Um, <laughs> then, you work, then you minus the temperature of your room. You minus the temperature of the flour. If you're using an, an industrial dough hook, you would give a couple of percent or a couple of degrees for friction. And then um, if you're using leaven, so for sourdough, you times it by four. If it's just yeasted, you haven't got leaven being a different temperature. So you take those temperatures away, and what it leaves you with will be the temperature you want your water, because then that naturally brings it back to around the 78 degree mark so my husband's a pilot and i feel like this is the kind of math he gets he does to get planes to fly and i love that bakers are doing this kind of math yeah. to get bread to rise <laughs> oh my it's, god it's, it's so poetic it's like just as intense <laughs> you know show, um, fantastic bread maker um and he kept telling me about final dough temperature and that and then i'm just like this is far too complicated for me but i finally after two years get what he's on about it's, uh, I think I'm going to need like a private tutoring session, James. I mean, I, I'm into this, but it's, I'm still like, I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah. I, I should write up on my blog the, the methodology or get a spreadsheet, I think. Yeah. Make an online calculator so we could just there plug it go. all in. And then I want it to, I don't even want to do the math. I just want the internet to spit out the numbers for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, and, and also where bakers or bread bakers use percentages of water yes. versus flour. So, 
I end up doing a maths degree every time I bake now. It used to be good in the old days. <laughs> throw some water in, throw some yeast, flour, hope. All right. So the next question from Zochamilli is what are the consequences of overproofing and underproofing your dough? Oh, I like this. Such one. a good question. I love it. Oh, I might need your help on this, Jeremiah. So um, <laughs> for underproofing, um, you generally end up with quite a dense loaf at the end because you haven't got, you haven't built up enough air bubbles within the dough. So when it hits the oven, it suddenly expands and then grows. Um, so that's one concern with underproofing. That's why I always err on slightly overproofing. Overproofing, if you go to, it, it's hard to go too far. I think I've never really over overproofed a loaf, but it will start collapsing because it will start. I think ruining some of the internal crumb structure. So it may rise quickly, a bit like having too much baking powder in a sponge and then sink back a bit. Um, so again, it, you just won't get the lovely fresh or fluffy texture. Is that why, so I feel like when I've watched British Bake Off, I've seen Paul Hollywood like lift a loaf and show a line on the side and like before he even cuts it. Cause I can kind of tell like once I see the crumb of a bread, a little bit of what's happened or you can at least make a guess, but I feel like he's held it up and shown a line. Is that when he's saying it's overproofed because it went up and then collapsed? Yeah. Sometimes there's what they call the shoulder on the bottom of a loaf where it's, which is a good way of telling if it's proved well, because um, if you imagine this is going to be hard to describe on the phone. Um, so if you imagine a, a flat glass sitting on the table what you want is slightly rounded edges going up at the sides of the glass, so it's more of a looks more ballish on the bottom, more like a sphere slightly on the bottom, and that shows that it's got a good oven rise and it's kind of lifted off the the tray as it's kind of risen up and going up. So I think he looks for some of that. You, you often see it in sourdoughs, that little natural curve at the bottom as it's kind of growing up. I have definitely overproved some sourdough in the past. And just like you said, James, it collapses in the oven. And then the flavor is like really can be overly yes, acidic yeah. and not, not a pleasant way. And then the texture can be very dense. So you lost, you're basically de de degenerated. No, de there's a deteriorated or there's a D word in there. That's really appropriate for this. <laughs> like the yeast basically ate through all of the flour's structure. And so there's no structure left. Um, and then, yeah, I've also, I feel like when I have had uh, underproofed or if I've underproofed the text, the, the moisture sometimes as well can be just off. The texture can be off. I don't know. If like gummy. Yeah, Do you like, find it goes more gummy? Yeah. yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's one of Paul Hollywood's favorite tricks is that when he opens the bread, he sticks his thumb in it to right. see if it's baked and proved enough. And if it stays as a solid ball, it's kind of, it's generally underproved and underbaked. Those yeah. famous words. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next step in the process, which is baking. So at Martin Sorge, Oh, I don't know. I'm going to say it that way. Best home oven temperatures for various types of bread. So they're thinking about crusty loaves or enriched doughs and any others you want to throw so out there. So for crusty loaves, I always go for as hot as possible. Um, so my oven will go up to 240C. Is it, is it C on our side? So I'm not sure what that will be on yours. Is it 
up. Or are we the I other way I think you're more. Out? I think. Or is it 500-ish? Not sure what the conversion will be, but. Well, I'll uh, check. Yeah, I'll check. I, I would go as hot as the oven will go. Uh, and also, um, I bake most of my breads in a Dutch oven um, or a cast iron um, skillet with a, a cover over the top. Uh, and preheat that for probably a good 30, 40, 50 minutes. Um, so as you put the, the bread in, it retains some of the steam and moisture so it gives it more time to expand and you get a lovely, rich, thick crust on it. Um, so that's my favourite. The four softer rolls and especially sort of like the uh, some of the buns that we've talked about earlier, definitely a, a lower temperature. Uh, in uh, And sorry, Jeremiah, I'm going to have to give you the job of converting again. Probably around 180, 200 uh, is what we use in our ovens over this side. I used to have a conversion chart on my office wall. I'm ready for you. So 240 is around 460-ish Fahrenheit. And then 180 is one that I've definitely gotten used to is about 350 for us. Yep, that's it. And then then you said, what was was it 200? Yes, which is about 400, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you don't want to, with those enriched doughs, you've got all that sugar and that butter. Potentially, you don't want to over caramelize it where you've cut, you know, you've cooked the outside, but the center hasn't cooked through. I think that's the issue. Why you use a, a lower temperature for enriched doughs. And then the hotter ones, you want to get that, or with crusty loaves, you want that crustiness. You want that, that air to expand as fast as possible. And right. Do you guys agree? Totally. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we have a question about mix ends from Carlos Marquina, 910. Mixing fruits into doughs. Is it always necessary to soak the fruit? And also, when do you add it in? Is this dried fruits we're thinking? That's what I'm imagining with him saying soaked fruits. But but maybe we could answer for both. Like, do you add dried fruit at the same time as you would add, you know, a fresh ingredient, like an olive or something? Yeah. So for dried fruits, I'd definitely soak them first because... Otherwise, if you put it into your dough early, it will start absorbing some of the water into the fruit rather than into the flour. Um, so I normally soak my fruit for about half hour before and then strain off any excess water. Um, and that's generally for sort of raisin sultanas uh, and those sorts of or dried cherries, that sort of stuff. And it also makes them nice and plump when you're eating them. I have um, on the show, I soak them in port um, for the tea cakes that I made. And that's really nice because it just gives you that extra depth of flavor. And I've also soaked raisins in rum as well when I've been making buns, which is a very tasty treat once you get into them. So definitely pre-soak. I generally, um, if it's sourdough, uh, I generally do every hour I, I need or do my fold and turns. So I would add the fruit on sourdoughs around the third or fourth term when you're really near the end of the process. It just seems easier to incorporate. Um, If I'm just making a standard yeast loaf, I will add it in when I start kneading, or about halfway through the kneading process. So I'll knead for five minutes so it comes together, tuck the fruit or plop the fruit into the, the mixer for another minute or two and then just do it by hand and keep poking them in if they're trying to escape out the top of your loaf. I have to tell you something funny. I've 
made a ton of candy peel about two years ago and I'm still working my way through it, but it's like hard as a rock. So now I have to soak it every time I use it or else someone will break their tooth. <laughs> Brilliant. And then the other way around, if you're using fresh fruit, it's worth trying to get as much moisture out as possible because otherwise you'll end up with too wet a dough. So for if you want to put some apples in, I often chop up apples and then put them in the oven on a low heat to dry out for 15, 20 minutes. Or rhubarb's a big favourite of mine, but that just gives out so much liquid that, I'll, again, I'll, I'll roast it in the oven for 20 minutes just to take out some of the moisture and it intensifies the flavour of it. That's a brilliant tip. Yeah, excellent. Because a lot of times it feels like, oh, I'd like to put you know strawberries in these buns or something like that. But what a disaster if you just put fresh strawberries yeah. straight in. We just planted a ton of rhubarb and I'm so disappointed. I guess it's not, won't be ready until next year, but next year I'm going to need all your rhubarb recipe recipes, James. Oh, perfect. I've got hundreds of them. Okay, I'll good. be more than happy to share. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're super happy that you're into flowers because we've got some flower questions. And the first one is from lawyer Jen and she wants to know, I want to use different types of flowers in my breads. Any types, or sorry, any tips for barley, gamut? I think that's camut, right? And yeah. spelt. I was glad you had that. Some sometimes these words you get so familiar reading, you know, but yeah. you never no, actually yeah, yeah. have to speak it out loud. I don't know if you noticed that for yourself, James, on the show. I came across that a lot where it was like, there's things that I'm so comfortable reading, but I've never had to speak out loud. And it's like, oh crap, is it gamut, gamut? I don't I don't know. I don't know. So <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I did exactly. I made some. Uh, I didn't know how to pronounce. I thought they were sable biscuits or sable biscuits, um, and I, I've made them a million times, but no one's actually asked me what they're called. <laughs> it's just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on national telly, I realise I can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so different types of flour. I've never tried barley. Um, but I do add, I've tried rye, doing 100% rye bread, it's delicious, very dense, um, and you can never, it's pointless kneading it. Um, there's, I'll go back to geekiness of flowers. There's two types of, uh, I guess there's two aspects to gluten. One's the glutenine, which is the gluey, stretchy stuff that really kind of, that's what you're building up. And then there's gliadine, which is the stickiness of gluten. So with rye, it's got a lot more gliadine than it has glutamine. So it's always going to be really sticky, the dough. So you do it in your mixer and you put it in a, a, a loaf tin. You'd never try and bake it as a, as a round brulee or, or anything like that. Um, so rye, I would generally now add as a flavouring to a, a white loaf or a wholemeal loaf. So put in about 25% rye and then the white or the wholemeal will carry the kind of the, the glutenine that you need to make the nice tasty sort of open crumb loaf. Uh, I'm just about to try Kamut, if that's how you pronounce it. And again, I've been adding it. Uh, I put in about 30% of my flour as that. Just It just brings a really nice, more nutty flavour. Um, same with wholemeals. I'd rather do a mix of white and another flour, and then you can gradually up the content depending on how how you like it, because some some of the grains can be a little overpowering. Spelt is another one that, if you get whole grain spelt, that's great for making loaves. It's delicious. It's, I, I'd use that at 100% spelt, but I think they do kind of a white spelt version, 
in the UK. And that ends up a bit like rye, where it's a lot more sticky as a dough and not that great. Um, but it's always lovely just trying different sort of whole grains. That We get a lot of malted grains where they've um, been toasted after they've, um, they've started to sprout. So it's a great way of adding flavor to different loaves. Just have a play around, see what you like. So recently someone brought me some freshly milled um, white winter wheat. I believe it's white or soft, some sort of soft wheat, but it was freshly milled. And I made a loaf of sourdough with it. It was 50% um, this whole wheat. And I've heard now people talk about how much more, how much better or how much more you can get out of freshly milled flour. And I'm wondering now that you are close to your, your miller, have you had that experience? Like, would you recommend people going and trying to get freshly milled flour? Definitely. Uh, it's, um, especially if you can get the stone milled flour rather than the machine milled, because it's a lot, it's a bit coarser. Um, and it just seems to have a lot better flavor to it. And there's a lot more of the, I guess the wheat germ and, all the good bits of roughage in it. Um, so, yeah, if you've got a good miller near you, it's well worth popping along and getting what they're milling fresh because um, that makes a big difference. Uh, and also talk to them because often they're making different types of flour for different people and they may let you try a bag of something different that they, you won't see on the shelves, um, which is good. So I, I often tap up my nice friendly miller now uh, and baker to, to send me stuff. Uh, and I'm still waiting for a bag of his equivalent of white lily to try the biscuits. Oh yeah, you definitely need to try yeah. some white lily. I was I was really surprised on how different it is than just our normal supermarket brand. So very tender, right? Yeah. Wasn't it just yeah. like shockingly tender? Yeah, but it's interesting. They I tried. They have um, an unbleached and a bleached, and they told me that Carrie from Cali's Biscuits uses the unbleached bought. But most Southerners use, uses the bleach. So it's kind of interesting to see the differences. I mean, again, this is getting pretty geeky, but the differences between just bleaching and unbleaching. Is it sourdough time up in here? All right. So Dinner Geek says, I'm so curious about sourdough starters. How do you start them, keep them, and use them? Now we could spend quite a few episodes like on this, episodes. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the basic... Um, sourdough starter to start it is literally mix 50, oh, 100 grams of water, 100 grams of flour, leave it with a lid off wherever you like in a nice warm kitchen. Then the next day, throw half of that away and put in another 50 grams of flour, 50 grams of water to so replace similar volume. If you carry on doing that for around a week, you'll start to see the bubbles develop from the natural yeast just coming in and starting to attack the flowers and eating all the sugars in the flowers. So you'll start to see little bubbles probably around day two or day three. Um, and then by day five, every time you refeed it, yeast is quite a hungry beast. You should start to see it growing in your little jar. I use a, like a mason kilner jar. Um, generally, if you half fill it, once it's nice and lively, it will grow all the way up to around the, the rim. And then as it's run out of energy, it starts to sink back down to the same volume. So put a little elastic band around your jar and you can see the rise and fall on it. Um, so once you've got it going, ideally it will take it'll probably take you only a week. Um, there are people who will feed their starters morning and night. Um, there's even sourdough starter hotels now that if you go on holiday, you can take your sourdough and leave it like a pet. What? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um yeah. Whoa. 
I feel like you would do that business, Jeremiah. Would you ever run a sourdough hotel? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so adorable. That's and I know adorable. bakers who actually take their sourdough starter on holiday with them and continue to feed them on holiday. Um, I'm not that precious. Um, as I mentioned earlier, yeast can live through probably Armageddon. It's it's so robust. So I've once I've got a nice lively starter... When so I'll bake at the weekend, I'll refeed it and I'll put it straight in the fridge before it has a chance to start really developing and growing. And you can leave it in there for a week and then pull it out probably the Friday night if you're baking on the Saturday, throw most of it away, put a hundred grams of fresh flour, hundred grams of warm water back into the jar, uh, and within a day it'll be back to its lively self. So you can feed it once a week. If you go on a holiday and want to leave it longer do a higher percentage of flour to water because if it's thicker the yeast it doesn't seem to kind of eat through all the the goodness in the in the bowl as quickly so you can probably leave it a couple of weeks or so if you make it a nice thick dough so go probably 80 milliliters of water to 100 grams of flour and then it will last for a long time i've pulled one out the back of the fridge four months later and revived it so they are pretty tough right there with you i've yeah, they really will last a long time. And then I always like to give a couple daughters or sons to some friends. So just I, I've had mine disappear once, and um, it was nice to know I could reclaim reclaim it from someone else. <laughs> and I think that's a great thing. With the sourdough kind of movement at the moment, it is so inclusive. And if you start talking about sourdough, the first thing people say is, oh, do you want some on the starter? And people are... I've posted my starter probably a, a lot of, across the UK to people said, oh, I want to start sourdough, but I don't know how. I said, I'll just give you a address. I'll send you some to get you going. Um, and I took in, I made a starter for the British, uh, the Great British Bake Off when I was on, and I gave a little pot to all of the bakers. Um, some of them made it back to their homes, so about half of them have still got them um, and still growing well. And Sophie used uh, my starter in the final, so I'm claiming that as a win for me. Does your starter have a name? Um, I'm not sure it's appropriate for the podcast, so you can edit this bit out. I, we call it the Essex Strumpet um, because it was very fresh and lively um, when we first made it. Is, is strumpet a dirty word? I don't know. It, it's kind of a, um, a not a ple- Someone of loose morals, uh, we say. Essex has always had this sort of um, view from uh, around the country that it's full of um, people with loose morals in Essex, so it kind of fit well. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in Essex most of my life, so I, can, I think I can get away with it. <laughs> Absolutely. You can say whatever you'd like. So we have a couple of questions that I feel like we've kind of answered, but let's just review. So at Jessica Lee Luna, will someone share a weekday sourdough schedule and talk about the fridge for bulk and final rising? So we've t- touched on some of that. Something I do is I will feed twice daily during the week. And if I'm baking for the weekend, then I, I build 11, let's say like Friday night, Saturday, I would do all my folds and turns and then... I would put it in the in the shaping and then retard it in the fridge for overnight to bake on Sunday. So that's a sample of a schedule I've used. What about you, James? I, I'm pretty much the same as you. So I, I will uh, build my leaven uh, on the Friday night, 
um, then make the do the bulk bulk proof out in the kitchen. Um, fold and turns every hour for five hours. Um, bit of bench rest, shape it into the the proving basket. Leave it for 20, 30 minutes, get a bit of a rise, and then just plonk it in the fridge. And I've left it in there for a day or two as well. A couple of days seems fine. You get a stronger sourness come through. Um, but you can leave it in there if you need to for a little bit longer. And Amanda, I've taken some of my starter to you, and we baked bread together. I know you've been baking bread. And how's how, what's, how's your sourdough adventure been? I just do whatever you tell me to do. <laughs> <laughs> my, my method is... Yes, Jeremiah. <laughs> it works great. It works really well. So, yeah. So whatever Jeremiah says, just do it, and you'll have a happy, ready, ready life. Yeah, <laughs> that's my best advice. And then our friend Big Man Loves Food is what's the best way to store a starter to avoid feeding it every day? And well, there you go. Overload it with some flour. Yep, and tuck it in the back of the fridge. Yeah, I've even pulled off a bit of mold and kept going. Just, just keep, keep it moving. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it will self heal. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and don't be worried if you get that liquid hooch on the top. Just pull that. Exactly. Away. That's, that's fine. It's all sourdough all alcohol. Just take a shot. Move. Yeah. No, I wouldn't take. I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to try it now. <laughs> I, I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with this. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, at Julia Totalone, Totalon says, "How do you adapt baking sourdough if not in a Dutch oven?" So what would I, you guys say? Oh, uh, that's a good one. I think uh, before I had a Dutch oven, I had a pizza stone in the oven. So anything that retains a lot of heat is good. So that, that worked very well. Just, again, really hot oven, let the stone warm up for an hour, and then just plonk it carefully, not to burn yourself, onto the pizza stone. If you haven't got a pizza stone, if you double up a couple of um, baking sheets, um, two or three, anything that just retains that heat as it first goes in. Um, and then if it's not in a Dutch oven, also you can squirt a little bit of water at the bottom of your oven in a, in a baking pan. And that will give it some more steam as well, um, just to help it with the rise. And I love this this question because it's pretty geeky as well. Is and sorry if I'm not calling this person a geek. <laughs> just, just me and <laughs> just the three of us. Just the three of us. Um, at HM Jocks wants to know how much does playing with the hydrat- hydration level of sourdough impact the final loaf? And I feel like that is something you hear a lot. Like oh, I made an eighty percent hydration loaf. I made a seventy-five. I made seventy, and it, it's almost a point of pride. The higher you can go. So what is that doing to the loaf? <laughs> it's definitely a macho thing with the higher hydration. Um, the the higher the hydration, the easier it is for the yeast and the, the fer- pre-ferment to grow more rapidly. So, so yeast loves that moist environment, so the, the wetter, the quicker it will grow. But you've got that break-even point where it, an 80% hydration dough, which probably, if I'm making a ciabatta, I'd go up to 80%, but I'd never be able to knead it on a, a counter because it would just be so wet. Um, I think you can go too far, but it'll give you loads of big open crumbs. So the sort of traditional ones you see where they cut it in half and you've got holes in it the size of your hands that if you put a fried egg on it, it will just fall through and you'd never see it again. Um, so I would, if you're starting, I'd start around 65 to 70% hydration because it's a manageable dough that you can knead. 
um, and then ease up. I probably wouldn't go higher than 75, which is probably pushing it with my skill, because shaping it at the end becomes really tricky. Absolutely. So I've got to ask Jeremiah, how high have you been with hydration? Oh, gosh. I have gone up to 80%. I'm wondering if I've done 85. And it's it's for more advanced people, and I, and I am not – it's hard. And I'm I would like to be advanced, but I'm not. I am I am working my way up there. It's yeah. that like James, like you said, James. The shaping is just a beast. And then like <laughs> I'll like um, you know you put it in the bowl or the banneton basket that's lined with you know some sort of fabric. <laughs> and then when you turn it out, like I'll the fabric's just soaked, and you're trying to pull it off the bread. It can be a mess. Yeah, so I mean, just have fun. You know, it ends up being some sort of fun, flattish Back to all bread. Delicious <laughs> yeah, but I'm totally think it's fun to try to figure out. Okay, how do I? It's all about how you do the folds and how you. And also, I've heard too that if your starter, the more lively yep. your starter is, the better it will be able to condition the gluten in the dough to be able to support that much water. So I think if you have a like if your starter is kind of on the slow side, I wouldn't do a high high hydration dough. I would wait till it's really, really. Or this is my other little thing you can do if you're like your starter just isn't feeling great. Put a pinch of instant yeast in. It's kind of a hybrid that's I've read is very common in France. So you get the flavors of your starter, but then you get the power and the strength and the conditioning from that traditional yeast, which can give you you know, that can be great. I mean, yeah, it's not a purist version, but <laughs> sometimes I'll do that if my starter's not, not <laughs> yeah. totally, if he's we'll being lazy. We'll blame the starters, <laughs> Which meant I was lazy. Yeah, so we kind of came full circle talking about how a good, like a good loaf of bread is just home-baked bread, put butter on it, and then in the end, we're back to that, right? I heard you say. Yes. Yeah, it's like any bread you can make is great. So all the technical stuff sometimes can overwhelm me, and that's why I tend, if I'm making bread most of the time, it's that no need loaf, loaf uh, that I just keep going back to because it's so approachable. But I mean, just making bread at home, the way the house smells is great, I think. So if you're listening and you feel intimidated, just get in there and do it. And if, and if you're full blown science math nerd, get as geeky as you want. It's one of those topics. I think you can go as deep as you want, right? So Absolutely. Anyway, so other than bread or bread, whatever you'd like to share, James, I know you've shared lots of recipes on your site. I'd love for our listeners and just curious for myself too, what recipes would you really love people to try? Are there any that you're just like, please, please, please world start here. So I, I think uh, hot cross buns are a thing in the US. Not, not really. You see them pop up a bit and, around yeah, Easter yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think... I'd love for people to try the cranberry orange hot cross buns that I've got uh, on my blog. They're one of my favourites. Um, they're an enriched dough, so they're lovely, sweet, buttery, lots of fresh fruit in. So definitely have a go at that. And then I've also got a passion for homegrown produce, so I try and bake seasonally. Um, so as beetroots come into season, there's a delicious chocolate beetroot brownie on the blog as well. Um, and the beetroot just gives it a lovely earthiness and the most vibrant icing that's naturally coloured that you can ever have. Um, so those are my two favourites, I think, at the moment. Oh, both so delightful and perfect. Like the hot cross buns, I'm curious, are they seasonal there as well? Or would you see those year round? They used to be just seasonal. So generally eaten on Good Friday, um, just ahead of Easter. 
Um, but nowadays they're in the, the supermarkets all year round, like most things. Ah. Um, so they're not as special as they used to be. I always remembered we had a little bakery at the end of our road and me and my dad would wander down on Good Friday to pick up our hot cross buns and you'd only get them kind of that time of year. So you'd look forward to them, but well worth trying. And I have to give a massive recommendation for your pastry recipe. I used it to make mince pies last year and it was the best, made the the best mince pies I'd ever made. My family, my friends were just like eyes rolling back in the head and it was really your sweet short crust pastry was a dream to make, make. And it's the, the recipe I'll always be going back to now. Cause that can be a tricky pastry and yours was just, I even got like layers. Like it looked almost like a bit like puff pastry and it was so tender and so I would, everyone should go try your sweet short crust. Oh, thank you so much. Pastry. I'm glad you brought that up too. Cause, uh, let's see, was it two years ago now, James, you were so kind to send me some of your mince pie filling and that was my first experience. So forever oh, that's, so neat. that's linked with you. And it was so delicious. I made a galette from it. It was just the most wonderful filling mm. So mm. boozy, so like just rich and decadent and flavorful and, and screaming holidays. We're always making shout outs for men's pies. I feel like on here, but there's yet another one. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I do love mince pies. That's one of them. And, and they have dried fruit, um, dried um, peel in them as well. But I, I can live with them in mince pies because you're right. It's so rich and boozy and sugary and spicy. And so I think I've got the recipe on the blog. It's probably one of the earlier recipes that I did. Uh, which I go back to every year to make uh, make it a couple of months ahead of Christmas as well to let it mature. But no, I do love that. And I'm glad I got you um, try and mince me. Yeah, she needed yeah. it. She needed it in her life. <laughs> I have a very selfish, selfish question. Um, I have Christmas pudding that's left still hanging out in my fridge, and it's delicious. I'm very proud of it. But what... Can I like crumble that into a, like a Chelsea bun? What should, what can I do with that? That, cause we're not going to eat it like normal right now. Ooh, that's a good <laughs> idea. So it's great crumbled into, if you're making an ice cream, so go for a vanilla ice cream and Ooh. crumble it in. Um, what else would I use it for? I like, well, in, in our family, we like it cold and then fry it in some butter. It's delicious. Really unhealthy. Good oh, boxing yes, day sir. sort of thing. Yeah. I would probably go down the cold route of putting it in an ice cream or, or something like that. Okay. Well, our final question. If you could bake for anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you make? This is the toughest question ever. And I flip-flopped about three times uh, over the last week. But I'm going to have to say I would bake something for Theresa May, our Prime Minister. She has had such a nightmare over the last two years with Brexit and um, our Parliament just voted down her deal again today. I think she needs a nice cup of tea and a cake. Um, so nice. She needs yeah. some nurturing baked it goods. Yeah. But I think I'd have to do it with a bit of irony and I'd send her a croissant or two as well on the side. <laughs> 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 but, but I think she just needs a big hug at the moment. Um, she was a brave lady picking up the, uh, mm. the gauntlet of taking this forward. And uh, I don't think she'll be around for much longer. So she deserves a good cup and a cake. So poignant, and I love, I love that you added a bit of irony. Just a little bit. So appropriate. Yeah. Well, James, it's been such a delight. I got to tell you, you're one of those people we just 
could not wait to have on and we've been figuring yeah. out like where could we oh. put James and I'm so glad we got to talk to you about bread because it's just been a delight thank That's you thank you for inviting me I'm a big fan of the uh, podcast oh, I was like super excited I got all, I, I get all fanboy with sort of like the old Great British Bank Off people and it's, it's quite similar with you two it's just like oh I just love their podcast so. it's been a pleasure talking to you both actually in real life it's uh, been fantastic <laughs> yes, yeah, finally. <laughs> well, we'll we look forward to keeping the conversation going on Instagram, and yes. we'll we'll definitely have to have you back. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you very much. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud, and if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. <laughs>